The reading is from a book called Listening for Our Song, Collected Meditations, Volume 4. The author is Unitarian Universalist Minister Sarah York, and the chapter is called The Wisdom to Know the Difference. And um, we're going to read a portion of it. Getting older is one of those things that cannot be changed. The losses are different, from, are different for different people. Sometimes the loss means giving up possessions to move into a smaller house or giving up independence to move in with a family member or maybe the loss of physical abilities, hearing, walking, seeing. Gradually, age reminds us that we can't do the things we used to do. Age forces us to redefine ourselves in terms of what we can do. It is an art to be able to grow through the losses and accept the process without giving into a spirit of decline. Aging is a process of growth, not of decline. I admire people who age well more than those who remain youthful. Sometimes it's hard to tell the difference, for both may appear vital and alert, but one avoids the realities of the autumn season of life by pretending that it's still summer, while others enjoy the brilliant colors. The first time I made a serious mental note of the serenity prayer, it was the shorter, more familiar, slightly different version. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. It was December 2nd, 1980. Just can't start this soon. Don and I were at a hospital so she could deliver our stillborn child. I was told I had to leave the room while Donna was to receive an injection in her spine to dull the physical pain of the delivery. I wandered the halls, an emotional zombie. This was an old hospital maternity ward. And to the best of my recollection, the halls were a dull green. And at the end of the hall, there were a few high back wooden benches that faced each other. The chipped shellac of the benches had names and initials scratched in and were stained by old graffiti. And tacked to the edge of one of the benches on a yellowing laminate with edges curling and peeling was a faded copy of the serenity prayer. As I read it, it seemed familiar, like a distant memory, and woke me slightly from my daze and registered somewhere in my aching heart. That tiny wall hanging was like the first sip of warm soup on a cold winter's day. Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. During that process of losing our child, I realized I would have been no kind of father, and that little girl was, in essence, a messenger. I decided to quit smoking cigarettes, drinking alcohol, and taking recreational drugs. I had a friend in recovery, and she led me to an AA meeting, and at the end of that meeting, everyone stood and recited the serenity prayer in unison. It was like the soup hitting my stomach. I did not consciously believe in God at that time, but I was comforted. Within two years, Donna became pregnant again with our son, Zach. There were many moments during that pregnancy, and especially during Zach's birth, where visions of our lost child haunted me. The serenity prayer was really being put to the test. I recited it so often and with such angst that the words got lost in the swirl of my anxiety, and the prayer basically became a gesture. Now, I don't mean to offend any Italian-Americans here, but I've been told that's called the Italian serenity prayer. 
I, at that time, was not prepared to accept anything but the perfect birth of a healthy baby. That prayer was answered. But the message of the serenity prayer, the message of acceptance and courage and wisdom, eluded me. Three years later, Ethan was born with a non-degenerative physical condition called arthrogryposis. His arms didn't bend, and he couldn't use them the way other babies did. Several doctors made dire predictions, but in one way or another, Ethan triumphed and developed ways of adapting the limitations of his body to his needs, and pretty soon seemed to be no different from any other kid on the street or in school. When he was reluctant to wear splints on his wrists in school to correct their crooked development, I would read Harry, Willie, and Carrothead to his classmates and make everyone little splints at a cardboard so they could understand what it was like for Ethan. When Ethan was nine, to protect his skin from the sun, he wore a t-shirt on a sparsely populated private beach we go to. Shortly after we returned from that vacation, we were invited to go to a very populated public pool. Ethan said he wanted to swim with his shirt on. I thought from the way he announced his intention that there was something behind his statement. So I asked him why. He sat silently staring at the corner of the room. I looked at his face and he wouldn't make eye contact. His normal jovial expression wasn't there. He looked concerned about something, so I pressed him a little harder. I sat on his bed and got close to his face, and I said, what is it? The silence grew louder. Come on, Ethan, you can tell me. His eyes filled with tears. Ethan, what is it? Just say the words. Why do you want to wear a t-shirt at the pool? He burst into tears. He blurted out... something about the way he looked without his shirt on, and I be and began to sob uncontrollably. Sorry. It was my turn to be silent. All I could do was hold him in my arms while he wept. I've had body image issues my entire life, and he was brave enough to express his feelings where all I ever did was to suppress mine. He demonstrated a maturity in that moment I had never known. Eventually, as his sobbing subsided, I said to him that he had to accept his body the way it is. He stopped crying abruptly and asked me, what does that mean? What does that mean to accept? I wasn't prepared for that question. My mind, my mind scanned the near and distant horizon for a thought, and I drew a blank. I felt stunned by the taser of this child's innocent and honest question. Caught in the headlights, I quickly considered saying, I don't know, but I knew that wasn't an option. I had, after all, proposed the concept. I couldn't say acceptance is acceptance, and I felt like Justice Potter Stewart, who in 1964 tried to explain hardcore pornography or what is obscene by saying, I know it when I see it. <laughs> what is AA? I thought hard. I thought hard. What does AA say about acceptance? I know this. I've heard it a thousand times. It's why I said it in the first place. And in that moment, I remembered another saying that's used in AA a lot, which is, let us, let us love you until you learn how to love yourself. And my answer went something like this. Acceptance means you have to be okay with who you are, because that's who you are. You are who you are, and this is what you have. And you have to be okay with it, because it is what is. I was sure I made no real sense whatsoever. And we left it at that. The trip to the pool was the next day, so he had the night to sleep on it. 
I don't think it's what I said, but the next day Ethan bounced downstairs and announced with great certainty and confidence that he would swim in the pool without a shirt on. I wanted to ask him what the difference was, but whatever the transformative process a nine-year-old goes through would have been far too complex for me anyway. I was just glad that he was okay with himself. This was a demonstration of acceptance, pure and simple. The God of Ethan's understanding granted him the grace to accept with serenity that which he could not change. Again, from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous on page 55, it says, Deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. It may be obscured by calamity, by pomp, by worship of other things, but in some form or other, it is there. For faith in a power greater than ourselves and miraculous demonstrations of that power in human lives are facts as old as man himself. And to quote the great Unitarian minister Forrest Church, when people said they didn't believe in God, he would always say, Tell me about the God you don't believe in, because I probably don't believe in him either. God is a very personal concept. The God of my understanding rests within me and guides my spiritual journey and and personal growth. My God shows me the beauty in the day and makes clear the difference between right and wrong. My God gives me a sure step through the uncertainties of each day and removes my fears, or at least helps me to learn to live with them and not have to be ruled by them. God is the light on my path. In its full form, the serenity prayer has us asking God for the grace to accept with serenity the things that cannot be changed. Grace. A series of threads within called poise, charm, faith, love, tolerance, understanding, trust, peace, forgiveness, and patience. They weave through us, holding our emotional beings together and help us get through unimaginable experiences with our spirits intact. The threads of grace, however, can snap and cause adverse reactions, which is why we have to ask God to bolster grace. We ask for serenity because it comes and goes, and we experience it superficially and deeply. Sometimes we have more grace than at other times, and serenity is momentary and fleeting. We need grace and serenity because they are the pathway to our destination, acceptance. And acceptance is an absolute. If there are circumstances we truly cannot change or influence on any level, then acceptance is the only place to find peace of mind. It's the last stop on the horror ride of the grieving process. In grief, we deny, bargain, feel anger, sadness, have unexpected and uncontrollable visceral reactions that don't subside until we enter the final and physical realm of acceptance. We can't put conditions on acceptance, nor is there room for bargaining or negotiating. Acceptance is as pure as water is wet. Acceptance is a state of mental, spiritual, and emotional bliss. Acceptance is perfection. The reading from the big book says nothing, absolutely nothing happens in God's world by mistake. Every day we find ourselves reluctantly accepting things we're powerless to change. Paul Tourneau, the Swiss physician and author, said, Acceptance of one's life has nothing to do with resignation. It does not mean running away from the struggle. On the contrary, it means accepting it as it comes. To accept, it is, to accept is to say yes to life in its entirety. This is why Niebuhr has us asking for the courage to change which that, sh- that which should be changed. Almost everything in life comes with a value judgment attached, a degree of difficulty, if you will. 
Some items that pass before us are easy to accept, while others take something extra to be able to hurdle. The horrific tragedies, the horrific tragedies in this world, be they a product of man or simply an unavoidable catastrophe, require an inner strength when we are unable to look away. We can ask to be changed within. We can ask for a better outlook and worldview. I've heard said that when we pray to change the world, we change and the world becomes a better place. I'm not advocating or even, even suggesting we accept the world and all the strife and conflict, all of the unacceptable situations as being exactly as they should be. We have to find much of what happens in this world unacceptable if we hope to succeed in changing it. And yet there's a big picture, a big picture we're not privy to. Isn't it easier to accept things when we know somehow that whatever the problem is also the flip side of the solution? Doesn't this bolster our courage and wisdom? Aren't today's political dramas going to lead to a better world order? Aren't disagreements needed in order to find common ground? Isn't pollution the beginning of the solution? Don't we evolve as a species based on our mistakes? This is why we must ask for courage to change that which should be changed and the wisdom to distinguish that which cannot be changed from that which should be. We must remain vigilant and never give in to defeat or complacency when it comes to the greater good. But oh, to be privy to that big picture. If only somehow we could stand on a ladder and reach up and pry open the outer crust of our immediate perspective and perception to look around at the future and maybe see the inevitability and meaning of things. I don't know, maybe we can. Maybe we do and just don't know it. Maybe that's what deja vu is and premonitions are. Maybe that's where faith comes from. Maybe that's where courage lives. Or is it from our rich history of slow but definite social, moral, and political progress that we can take comfort in seeing that things usually turn out for the better? We must take comfort that everything has a way of working out, but never confuse faith with complacency. Darfur, Syria... Aurora, Penn State, we must believe deep in our hearts that everything happens for a reason or else we would have no reason to make change happen. The gift of acceptance doesn't always look like a gift. I have a friend whose son was in a horrific auto accident and in a coma for three weeks and is now one year into learning how to walk and talk again. She said the accident and the aftermath were the worst thing that ever happened and in turn the best thing as well. The best thing for her is a sober mother who faced life on life's terms without needing a drink to get through it and an opportunity to build anew a relationship that had strayed. Once again, acceptance, pure and simple. In January of this year, my friend Alan was lying in a hospital bed dying from cancer with no chance for any more surgeries. His only option for end-of-life care would be Calvary Hospital in the Bronx. Alan was extremely resistant to the idea of going there. Richard, his power of attorney, his health proxy, and I argued with him for quite some time. Having once been a successful businessman, Alan negotiated vociferously and with great alacrity. He was not going to budge. After a while, I said, Alan, remember what the big book says. Acceptance is the answer to all of our problems today. The room got quiet. Alan stopped talking and stared at me, and his eyes filled with tears. Hey, look, guys, he said, this is hard. It was in that moment he accepted that he was going to die and agreed <clears throat> to go to Calvary. He passed away soon thereafter. 
Achieving acceptance is not a simple mathematical formula. We cannot predict when we will be struck serene. The best we can hope for is that each day we take an incremental lesson from the day before and know that our prayers are being answered even though at times it doesn't look or feel that way. And we do not pray once and expect results. Prayer must be consistent. Prayer is like applying a mist from a spray bottle onto dry soil. If we pray every day and allow the soil to absorb the moisture through meditation, our gardens will grow. For those who think prayer is unnecessary because their goodness is intact and they are living a principled life of service and their garden is flourishing just fine without consciously praying and meditating, I say these people are engaged in an unconscious form of prayer and meditation. We all converse with our higher selves and even if unaware of it, we should all hope to do our, be- our best to live and act out of the principles of honesty, faith, acceptance, self-appraisal, generosity towards other, service, peace, patience, compassion, kindness, justice, love, tolerance, forgiveness, and understanding, and have a more enlightened, more helpful, less judgmental way of being. God gathers the threads of grace to hold us together and bind us to our loftier and better selves. God leads us into a deeper and more profound serenity and longer-lasting peace of mind. And as long as we're moving forward into a deeper and more meaningful existence, and as long as we're making contributions to those around us and helping the world to become a better place, we're engaged in a progressive and constructive life. And that progress is perfection. Cahil Gibran said, advance and never halt, for advancing is perfection. Advance and do not fear the thorns in the path, for they draw only corrupt blood. The God of my understanding gives me the courage to forge ahead. The God of my understanding showed me how our stillborn child was the beginning of a new life. My 91-year-old father is having a difficult time accepting his growing limitations. He's still strong and vibrant and fiercely independent. His mind still functions for the most part. He still drives. He will not relinquish that independence and is in total denial about the potential danger he poses. Going back to and paraphrasing what Sarah York said about aging, he is avoiding the winter of his life by still imagining there are brilliant colored leaves on the now barren trees. On a recent vacation we were on together, he fell twice, left the gas on once, and had trouble and confusion with a few simple tasks. I cannot be there with him all the time, and I would like to see him accept a full-time aide or companion. He won't. I want to say to him, surrender, Dad. To surrender means to stop fighting and join the winning side, but the winning side in this case is the inevitable, so I say nothing. Perhaps in this case, denial is a good thing. So if I'm there and he falls, I'll pick him up, help him with his tasks that have become difficult or confusing, and remain dutiful, patient, kind, and loving, and keep praying for acceptance. I can only hope that if I reach the age of 91, all this prayer pays off and I can be content knowing that everything in my life is exactly as it's supposed to be. May it be so for all of us.